0: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I had an interview with Stephen from Coffeezilla. Very very interesting interview. Uh, Steven's pretty bright, and he is doing a great job of taking down fake gurus on YouTube. It's so great. Like the videos on there are so great because uh, he just goes through the the YouTube video or goes through the videos that these people play, or talks to all the people that uh, the fake gurus have kind of screwed over and gets the real story and gets all the tricks and secrets that they use in order to um, uh, remove people from their money. Uh, Very interesting, very interesting phenomena and very sad. And and this is why I think he's doing a great job of actually like bringing attention to this because uh, there's some really shady stuff going on. Of course, buyer beware and all that stuff, um, but still, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not good stuff. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or any of the other major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and subscribe. And if you're feeling very generous, I would love it if you could leave a review. Uh, also, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear from you about what you think of the show. Uh, If you have any suggestions, comments, uh, anything that you want me to hear, I'd love to hear it. At Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. That's S-T-E-W-A-R-T-A-L-S-O-P-I-I-I. My DMs are open. Would love to hear from you. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Stephen from Coffee Break YouTube channel, and he's also got this awesome side series called CoffeeZilla where he investigates into uh, uh, YouTube gurus, particularly of the financial sort. Um, And I asked him if he ever does the spiritual sort as well, uh, uh, because there's a whole other sorted world there as well. Um, But welcome to the show, Stephen.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, Yeah, excited to talk about this stuff.
0: Yeah. It's so I'd love to understand you were you're doing. I didn't even know about your other YouTube channel Uh, and then in preparation for this I saw that you do this whole other YouTube channel Which I assume is helping people with technology But the real reason I found you was because a friend of mine posted one of your videos of Of going after this guru and I was like, whoa, this guy's just been like goes in details exactly how Uh guru develops this persona that people latch on to and then pay them money for. And it was so interesting. How did you start this? Why did you start this? Uh, I started it because I was just seeing it started.
1: I, I, because of Ty Lopez primarily, I was just annoyed by seeing his ads, but I thought he was kind of the, you know, the whole picture. And then one day I saw this other guy, Mike Vestal or something like that. And he's like this 20 year old millionaire in Bali, whatever. And I know enough to know that's, that's not a thing, right? Like, like this guy's totally faking it. Um, But I was looking at his comments and they're all positive. They're like, Mike, 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 you're so amazing, Mike. You're so incredible. And he's basically telling them, Hey, yeah, you can live like me. You can be just like me if, and this is what I, I didn't know the business model yet. So that he goes, if you come and join my course. So for those of you at home, um, They're these internet gurus who they deliver and they, they present this lifestyle. And then they basically say, hey, I did it the hard way. You can do it the easy way. Go sign up for my course, which usually is an astonishing $2,000 or $1,000 or $3,000. And my main problem with, with it was always and still is who are these people targeting, right? They are not targeting companies. They are not targeting People with their lives together. They are targeting poor, desperate people, and so I was like, "How is nobody talking about this?" This is into, and the more I dive in, the more I realize what a gigantic, million-dollar problem this is. People are making fortunes off the back of poor people. I mean, like poor, desperate people who want to improve their lives. What is going on?
0: It's it's absolutely crazy, and I didn't. It, it, it and th- this is an interesting thing for me because I've been doing uh, yoga. Th- I've been teaching yoga, I've been sharing yoga and meditation for for a while now and there's such a ethical thing with teaching consumers not businesses and this is why I want to teach to businesses also harder to get into businesses as well but um, but there's something about the nature when you're providing something to somebody it, this image making and this is the whole thing we get into with with yoga itself is that there is a natural tendency for a human being to create an image and then, and then try to become that image. Um, and then what these guys are doing are taking that process saying I've done it. I love what you said about, I did it the hard way. I'll give you the secrets to do it the easy way. And I think that's the key because there is no easy way. It's all contextual and particularly if you're signing up for a course.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, people ask me all the time, well, Stephen, what do you think about this guru? I've, because I've done enough of these, people are starting to like look to me as like, oh, he must know who the real gurus are. And I'm like, <laughs> no, they, they, you, if you're looking for a shortcut, you're asking the entire wrong question. Like this is the wrong way to look at things. Um, but yeah, they're abusing a, a mentality that most people have, which is like, six, you look like success, people look like success. So they dress up in the suit. They get in the Lamborghini, which they rented. They all rent the Lamborghini, guys. They don't actually have a Lamborghini. They rent the Lamborghini. They rent a nice house. They make a little video on it. They portray this lifestyle, which they do not have at the moment. But here's the crazy thing. Actually, this is interesting. So they don't have the lifestyle when they start. But they get enough people to buy in that they become rich. And so they will at one point be like, no, I really own the Lambo maybe. Or I really own the house. And maybe they do. But they didn't get rich because they learned how to do e-commerce, which they're supposedly selling you have to do. They got rich because of suckers like you who paid for their Lamborghini. They, like it's it's so crazy when you think about it. Poor desperate people looking to escape their nine to five are paying for Lamborghinis. They're paying for houses for rich go in e-gurus. It's it's crazy. It's crazy.
0: So there's two things to that. There's the um the fake it till you make it, which is Okay, to a tiny, tiny extent, I think I'm not sure about that. I, 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 and so, and I come from Silicon Valley, where that is an accepted thing. You fake it until you make right. it, um, right. And so, the, it, it, and that is there. Is, there's a lot of that going on in Silicon Valley, which gets us to the next point, which is Lamborghinis, cryptocurrency. Have you taken any cryptocurrency gurus down? If not, you should.
1: No, dude. The the, pro, the pro, Really, the problem is I feel like I just scraped the tip, <laughs> tippity tip of the iceberg. I'm like, I keep telling people because people ask me, they're like, oh, I love your series but aren't you going to run out of gurus? <laughs> I say like every time I take down a guru, I find two more, you know, clawing their way up to the top. Um, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. And people don't understand the mm. money in this. That is the biggest thing I try to communicate to people is how much money is being ripped out of the hands. Cause I mean, if they were stealing, you know, if they were taking, not, I won't say stealing, uh, cause that's a legal term, but if they were kind of, you know, taking people's money for like, I don't know, $10,000, people would have less of a problem with it. People with small channels, like 50,000 subscribers, are getting $1 million per course. Like they sell $1 million worth of product, $2 million. I mean, it is the most profitable way to run a YouTube channel right now is like to basically scam people. Mm. It is a gigantic scam. And those are the the small fries. Those are small potatoes. I mean, we talk about some of the bigger channels. They're making tens of millions of dollars a year. Off of broke, desperate people. It's like, I mean, that's that's basically the headline. Uh, on your point about fake it till you make it, so I kind of have a philosophy on all, all, what is acceptable, um, what is unacceptable in terms of advertising. So basically, there most advertising. We all know advertising isn't the most honest profession. You know, you can't call out all fit, fake it, false advertising. Where I draw the line is in health, wealth, and happiness, because health, wealth, and happiness are inelastic demanded products, right? Like there's an inelastic demand for health. If I have cancer and you tell me your little miracle water cures my cancer, that is a statement that not only am I predisposed to believe because I have, because my doctor told me I'm terminal, whatever, but I'll also pay you any amount of money for it. This is also true of money. If you tell me you can make me a million dollars, well, I can justify spending thousands of dollars, which I don't have, maybe it's next month's rent, but I can justify it in my head because I'm like, well, he is going to make me millions of dollars. So this like makes sense. This is where false advertising should be routinely called out and we should have high standards for the, the advertising. I mean, like if you make it seem like my iPhone case is going to make my life a little bit better. Yeah, it's fine, but I'm only going to pay up to a point. This is, and this is where you're right about the spiritual gurus because they also are solving a problem with inelastic demand. You can just charge any amount of money. So I have a problem with how much money people are charging and I have a huge problem with how they're advertising over and over and over. I do not see the true claim, which is, hey, this is really hard work. It's probably not gonna work for you. It rarely works for anybody and you have to get extremely lucky to make a living off this, much less a fortune. What I actually see is, hey, quit your nine to five job. All those losers at Starbucks are just working away and you know, go, go be a laptop lifestyle guru with me. Dude, get out of here, get, get them out of here.
0: It's also happening in the digital nomad thing too. I oh, guess it's, I, yeah, it's, it's how it works with anything. So I wonder what you just said about there. It's hard. It's probably not going to work for you. You probably shouldn't do this. I wonder if anybody has ever used that successfully as a sales pitch. Can you use that as a sales pitch? Uh, I think
1: it, I don't know if it's a, I think it's just a true statement. I mean, I think like if you market a drug, it isn't a sales pitch to say like, it might not work for you. It's just the truth. Um, that's the I question think it's, is,
0: is, can you sell the truth or do you have to mask the truth in order to sell it?
1: Um, the truth becomes integrity and and like respect within a community. And then over time, you can build up a legacy of people listening to you. But it's, yeah, it's hard to initially be a sales pitch. And this is why so many gurus do it is because they're in an ecosystem which competes with a bunch of other gurus lying. And so even if you start as an honest guru, you either will get weeded out because no one wants to watch a video about how tough entrepreneurship is when somebody else is saying how you can make millions of dollars a day. So like you're either weeded out or you join and try to one up everybody else. And so this is like, this is why it's hard when people say, where are the real gurus? It's like, well, they're probably, they probably just quit because it's really hard to be a real guru right now because people don't want the hard answers. People want the easy answers.
0: So yeah. um, that brings another nature of the discussion is that there's also the demand side of it as well. And the demand creates the supply in a sense. It's co-creative. So the, 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 the suppliers supply something, the people coming in for it, we're like, Oh, I like that. And then the, as you said, then they create the lifestyle. They actually become that lifestyle due to mm-hmm. this kind of nature of it. Uh, yeah. And the people who are telling the truth are doing it quietly um, and aren't making a big fuss about it. Cause they, that's not part of the truth that I, I think, I don't know. No, no, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely
1: right. And look, I, I, I don't tell people don't go and try to do something, you know, that's risky. I mean, I, I had I have a chemical engineering degree. I've never done chemical engineering. I jumped straight into YouTube. It's a risky activity. I knew it was risky. I took the jump. I took the plunge. I do it full time now. Um, I had to get some side jobs while I was working, but like, while while it wasn't working yet. So I'm not a stranger to taking risks on like kind of by the numbers sort of insane ideas. Um I just think you should do that with the full knowledge of what it is, and especially when people are taking your already weak resources like when I w- wanted to start YouTube, if I had paid a two- for a two thousand dollar course, I might not be here right now because I might not have money because a-, a lot of it was just like mm-hmm. scraping together my resources, pulling them together, so when people say like oh here 's the shortcut to definitely be successful. I just think like you 're hurting more in- entrepreneurs than you 're helping, and mostly you 're just scamming people, but that's the whole thing.
0: <laughs> so that gets into burn rate, which is the most, uh, that, and that is something from Silicon Valley that is really like uh, something most people get burned into their heads, particularly because the burn rate is larger here. Uh, but uh, is that, yeah, when you're starting something new, the most important thing to do is cut your costs. Um, and I'm actually about to do it as we were discussing before the show. I've been now doing this, doing interviews for about two years. Um, and uh, I've gotten really lucky with my guests coming on, but I haven't been lucky with the subscribers and everything I were not lucky maybe I'm not doing the right the right things but um, essentially it's taking longer than 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 I expected so it's so i'm I'm now going to cut my burn rate and also investigate something I've been meaning to investigate for a long time and cross a linguistic border which I'm really interested about um, so yeah, it's like burn rate and then I guess what are the other things that you've learned from doing your YouTube channel that these gurus kind of ignore or repress?
1: Uh, What are things that I do in my YouTube channel that gurus are not, like they're not saying or they're not doing?
0: They're not saying, so they're not saying is a part of it. Like what? So you have burn rate, which is, which is. Oh yeah. No, they just overrepresent the income opportunity. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, so like Amazon FBA, Amazon fulfilled by Amazon. It's like a version of drop shipping. That's a little bit easier. And so this guy, you know, these, all these guys that come on and they say, Amazon's a trillion dollar a year business and you can have your slice too. There's app. First of all, they don't tell you that the market's extremely saturated. The amount of third-party Amazon sellers that are coming on right now is insane. And the number of people who actually sell, uh, okay, there's a lot here. So I'll just, I'll break down one example and just assume that this applies across because all the gurus do a different industry. So we're just going to focus on the Amazon FBA. because there's kind of a lot to it. So here's what the guru will tell you. It's a trillion dollar industry. You can make tons of money that like the, your piece of the pie is just waiting for you. And look at this guy. He did $30,000 in sales. Okay. Great, thirty thousand dollars in sales. Whatever. Usually, by the way, those sales numbers are from giveaways. They encourage people to do giveaways to get rankings on Amazon. So it's like they're not profiting, and that's what they never say. Is they never say profit. So out of that thirty k, they probably actually lost thousand dollars. They've just basically sold the product for less than it's actually worth, right? And then they're they're posting their numbers so they can get ranked on on Amazon and people check out their product. But then, even if they're selling thirty thousand dollars in units. Amazon FBA, they take a cut. There's also the original cost of the product because these people are dropshipping. They're not actually producing the product. And so your average margins are like 15%. So if, if you actually run the numbers, I think it's like 30,000 drops to like 3,000, which all of a sudden, or 3,000 or 5,000, um, which all of a sudden, you know, that's an okay income, but it's it's not the, the thing you promised me, which is a, making a fortune. And so what you actually find out is like, when they say, oh, there's, 2% of all Amazon sellers are millionaires for example are, are they make a million dollars in sales even that you're only start a million dollars a year that's like 150k I mean that's a good income but that's 2% of third-party sellers and so when you say 2% are millionaires people think oh I'm a millionaire now no you're just like middle class I mean you like middle class you're if you're in California you're not even doing that well I mean California is so insane right now but I was just there to see my brother but um But this is the misrepresentation. So by not saying, by not including the actual details of the business, people want to sign up because they think there's so much more money in it than there is. This Mm -hmm. is a very similar thing to MLMs. I think there's a lot of overlap with MLMs and uh, with fake gurus. And I think MLMs are fake gurus are sort of the evolution of MLMs kind of fizzling out to a large extent. People know, people know it's a scam. Mm -hmm. And this is the sort of new thing where it's like, let me package somewhat banal information, sell it for $1,000, call it coaching and, you know, wrap it up in a day. But um, yeah, no, I mean, like the big problem is just like, is is the information. They oversell the opportunity and it turns into false advertising.
0: Yeah. This is uh, very interesting. So it's just like a very deeply human thing to want to believe somebody, particularly when they tell you that you're going to, it's all easy and that you're going to make a lot of money uh, and it seems like a timeless thing of human nature is that a lot of people fall into it particularly young people um, and mm-hmm. uh, and then it's evolving this is why I would love to see you do one on a cryptocurrency thing because there are so many good ones there um, uh, uh, and that's the also the evolution of MLM is 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 now they're recreating it in cryptocurrency type of things yeah um, which is interesting
1: I'll just say something real quick Um Run away anytime you hear someone talk about a proven system. Anytime you hear someone talk about, oh, you know, like this is, this is the new way to make millions. Look, people who are making millions, they did it with opportunity. Opportunity is everything you can't start Windows, Microsoft today. You can't. Bill Gates did it. It's too late. There's already a Bill Gates. You know what I mean? There's already a Facebook. There's already, you can't remake Twitter. We've seen people try to remake platforms and their problem is they don't have the opportunity. So when people say there's limitless opportunity, I made a million dollars. Well, that guy probably took the opportunity. (laughs) You know, there's probably nothing. there's, There's every time someone does something, it becomes less profitable to go redo the exact same thing. So I, like I, It just blows my mind, and I feel like that's a core thing to understand when evaluating, you know, is this worth doing? Is this not worth doing? The central thing you have to ask yourself is, like, is the opportunity still there? It could have been real at one time. You know, the gold rush was once real. Very quickly, the people who, like, came late, it's too go- – it, the gold's gone, man. And By the time you
0: hear about it, it's probably gone. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So what is the antidote to this if you're going to – You know, like it's it's for me, it's like skepticism. But how do you train yourself to be skeptical?
1: Um, that's a good question. I think I think maybe people get a lot of people get burned. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully some people watch my videos and they and they realize, oh, there's not just one person doing this. There's hundreds of gurus out there doing this. I should not, you know, fall for this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what you said is true. It's like, just have a, anytime someone's trying to get you to pay thousands of dollars, you should have a really high standard of evidence and you should also have a really high standard of like knowing that you want it to be true. That is a huge problem. It's like Mm -hmm. you want, you were naturally going to want to make millions of dollars. And so you have to like almost fight against yourself. And the old, just the old saying is always true. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. I, it's, so, it's so often said that it's banal and like we think it's stupid. But I think if you just lived with that as a motto, you're so unlikely to get scammed.
0: Yeah. And it goes back to something I learned from Robert Sapolsky, who is a neurobiologist at Stanford. He talks about the amygdala. Uh, and then around the amygdala, we have this added part of the amygdala, which is, uh, allows us to learn distrust and fear. So we start off as babies as being open to everything and trusting of everything. And then all, then we learn through experience or hopefully our parents kind of educating us or society educating us to be distrustful of others, um, which is something interesting as we live in this society. It already happened when we moved to cities that were around strangers, you know, before we would have known everyone that, that was around us. And now we moved to cities and now there are people that are hustlers out there um, hustlers in the negative sense. and uh, And now we got the internet, which is like a jump up from the city, which is now it's like, there are people who are malevolent and will try to get you. Um, And how do we learn this? And that's the other thing about the internet. The internet essentially is in many ways making us more trustworthy of people. But then we've also got to remind ourselves that there are people out there who will take, who will try to do something, um, who will take advantage of you. Um, Oh,
1: I want to, I want to say something real quick. Like, I, I don't think we should put this all on the consumer, by the way. Um, there are reasons we have fake advertising laws. It shouldn't be okay to just say things that are not true. Um, like, you know, we don't expect people to be skeptical of drugs. We just say like, you can't just say a drug does something and it doesn't do what you say it does. You need evidence for like these things. Um, I think this is true of this kind of advertising. The, the, one of my big issues is like YouTube, Facebook, they allow this type of advertising. They Facebook has cracked down a bit, unbelievably. Mm-hmm. Facebook is more <laughs> tough than <laughs> YouTube too. is, which blows a lot of people's minds. But, because uh, I know they're in a lot of trouble because they're not tough on ads, you know, historically, but, um, but they're even tougher. But it's like, you can still say so much on Facebook and you can advertise and Facebook will target they'll help you get sales like imagine how insane that is We, we are not prepared we like we as a society we have not had a good conversation around algorithmic targeting and if it's okay like if we think it's fine um because what you can do now for those of you at home who don't know like you can run a google ad campaign and you can say like look i want you to maximize conversions normally that's good if you're a sneaker person, they'll sell to people who need sneakers. But if you're selling snake oil, what you're essentially asking Google to say is, get the dumbest people in the room. Get the most gullible people that you can find in my room, and I want to pitch those people. And that's what Google's doing. They're maximizing your sales. And if you're selling snake oil, by definition, it's the most gullible people. And Google's helping. They're complicit in this. Um, So, I mean, as to their exact level of responsibility, I think I, I can't answer that question. But I think it's important to think, you know, we can't just endlessly let people advertise and expect the consumer to just be like super knowledgeable and, you know, endlessly observant. I I think I do it because Google is not going to make a decision in the near future, but I want to make myself obsolete. I don't want to have to do these things forever. Like I, because there are going to be endless gurus and I don't have (laughs) endless time. So it's like, let's fix the problem, which is that these guys can endlessly advertise to, to
0: young people. This gets into a big thing I talk about on the show a lot, which is essentially there's this belief, particularly in Silicon Valley, of of, uh, technology, put the technology out there. It'll figure itself out. Uh, And then, you know, that's not true. There is. I was actually just talking to my dad earlier today. We're going to do a a series where we live stream every every Saturday. And he was a journalist. uh, And he basically covered the rise of technology. And in the beginning, the internet was started with an ethos from universities that it's going to be free and it's going to be open and that you're not going to charge any more amount of money for people getting better access or lower access or anything like that. It's going to be free and open and fair and equitable to everybody. Um, and that was true for a long time until until I would say I would put it on Facebook as the first walled garden uh, that really thought about how do we separate, corner off a section of the internet, make it totally opaque to the rest of the internet and create a walled garden um, and now, and now we have a whole country doing it in China, where it's like you're not getting past China's firewall. And and people thought, oh no, that's going to be impossible. There's no way that you can police the internet, and you <laughs> most definitely can. And the Chinese are doing it, and they're exporting it. Um, and so there is an ethical implication to whatever we create. If you're creating a gun, you have responsibility. This is a claim I'm making. You have responsibility in the in the in the violence that that gun has to do with it i'm not arguing for the necessity of violence because sometimes violence is necessary but uh anybody creating these tools has an ethical implication but it's not clear what that ethical implication right
1: is. i totally agree yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. like it, it's like some but it's like it would we put someone in jail for that i i don't know um it's really hard to say i think it also ma- it, it. matters the cultural adoption of these things too right like so um I think the internet was less scrutinized for a while because they were sort of the underdog sort of fighting up and the young people knew about it, but it wasn't really every, now everyone's on the internet. Everyone's getting their information online. And so much more now that it's the com- dominant cultural force, we are looking at it and we're like, wait, are we are we happy with this? Like, are we happy with the way things are? Uh, you put, you, you talked about a walled garden and I think that's interesting because as a YouTuber, I mean, I'm personally touched by this, but um, I've noticed that these companies, they hide so much that is so important, particularly, I'm talking about the algorithms, how their algorithms work. And they say it's because they they like it's proprietary, et cetera. But there's so much that is going on behind the scenes that hides any culpability that you could have had. Mm-hmm. So in the example of gurus, right? like if if a, a guru used to be able to target by income, right? And that's really, scum. I mean, that gets into like the scummiest thing you could do. Like, cause you could like target low income, desperate people. Okay. Google took away that targeting option, right? So you can't do that anymore. Great. I think that's a good thing. However, when you do algorithmic, basically uh, optimization, you end up doing it. Mm but with no accountability because (laughs) the algorithm is doing it. So like Google, because Google says, well, we won't tell you what your demographic is. So if they don't tell you, you don't ever have to have the responsibility of knowing who you're targeting. And so like it puts you in a such a weird position because you can, you can basically have total deniability of what you're doing because, oh, I let an algorithm do it. It's not my fault. It's an algorithm did it. It's like, it's like if Tesla's uh, a Tesla gets pulled over and it's on autopilot, you know, who's, who's accountable is the ai accountable is tesla accountable it's like because they're not making their algorithm public it's you don't have public testing um so yeah this i mean this is a huge problem
0: that's really interesting and there's an argument to be made and i i can't make it because i'm not an expert in it but that the people actually creating it don't can't peer into the algorithm and actually understand how it's working. They can define variables. And I'm, I, I've, inter- I've interviewed enough AI people and I should probably ask one of them about this, uh, whether you can actually get a good understanding of how good your understanding can be of these algorithms and how much influence you can take and see into it. Or is it like something like, you know, uh, as SSRI, antidepressant where we just kind of know that it works for some people um, but we don't really know how it's working we're just kind of like yeah
1: this is a great point no no this is a great point and it's true that most uh, neural nets when they get sufficiently complex they just become black boxes I'm not a, a mm. an AI, but I've, I've worked on some projects that do this and uh, I've talked to enough people to know that yeah like it becomes a black box situation where it goes in it comes out and all you see is what goes in and go, goes out right the problem is is Google isn't really telling you what comes out. Like, they're hiding it. They're hiding it, right? So, we don't actually know what's going in and what's going out. We only know sort of, uh, or I guess maybe sometimes they cover what's in because sometimes they cover the variables they're considering when targeting, right? So, it's like, it'd be really useful to know, hey, Google, you don't let anyone target by income, but with your automatic optimization, are you using income as a variable? Well, Google won't tell you that. They won't tell you what race they're using. They won't tell you if they're using race as a variable, which is super important to know. They would say, "Well, you don't need to know that." But yes, we do, because these things are everywhere, right? So, um, so yeah, I agree that you like we shouldn't expect people to tell us, you know, exactly how it works. But we should have access to the input and the output, mm. because that's what matters when it comes to evaluating the performance and efficiency of these things, right? So it's like, if your Tesla saw that it was a 65 miles an hour, so they input that, and then they're driving 75 because you have it on Mad Max mode or whatever, it's like, that is a problem. That is a problem with your AI that we can see very clearly just from input out.
0: So, and that's really important. gets to the topic uh, of kind of the nature of capitalism itself. And I'm by no means anti-capitalist, but there is something about, and maybe it's corporatism as well, where you and it's the same thing people have been talking about a lot since the 70s and 80s is that you become you get part of this organization and you have your role and responsibility, but then you're disconnected from your outputs and you're disconnected from your inputs and you kind of be like, well, I don't I don't know about that. So I I, I don't I don't have any responsibility in that. Um, and it's kind of the same thing for the global nature of what's going on in terms of pollution in terms of like so, you know here here i am in san francisco i'm using plastic that plastic i thought that plastic was being put into uh, recycling centers and and being recycled and then all of a sudden trade war happens with china and we realize well we've been sending that plastic to china now they're dumping it in the ocean it's like um uh it's it's you know it's like we're we're separate from these things and we don't all these externalities and it's like partly on the consumer's fault but partly also on the people who are Designing the systems, but who the fuck is designing the system? Like, there's no one party who's designing the system. It seems like it's a natural system as well. So, I don't know if anything sparked for you in that.
1: Uh, The one thing that sparked for me is like a a lot of people know, you know, capitalism is a great driver of incentive. It's a great rewarder of incentive. You know, all these things. You're right. It it totally destroys any concern about externalities except in how how it affects. I mean, this is a cynical way to look at it. I I don't believe that every uh, business owner is just unconcerned with externalities, but largely it destroys your incentive to do anything about it unless it affects your bottom line in terms of like public relations, whatever. So what we'd want to do is usually we want to say, okay, well, let's just have a government come in and kind of regulate that. (laughs) the problem is government is traditionally really bad at regulation. We're super slow. And then like, especially with tech, there's an additional problem where there's a technical side to this, a technical know-how where the best people in theory to regulate these things are the creators, but they're also the ones who have the most incentive not to regulate it properly. And the people who are least qualified are the senators that we want to be regulating it. Right. Like, like these, these guys are people who don't know how to work an iPhone, which could, could be used by a baby. Um, so it, it's, it's a catch-22 because it's like, well, they might end up crippling these tech companies for no reason, not really solve anything. Um, but it's like, then this idea of self-regulation has come into Silicon Valley and, you know, to a lot, a lot of industries. It's, called, it's something called regulatory capture, actually, where the, where the person who is uh, supposedly being regulated has actually gained influence with the people who, the regulators, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what Google says. They say, hey, let us advise on how you regulate us. and trust us we'll be we'll be good right like we'll we'll be good boys um no no huge huge problem it's just this intractable issue where it's like your senators are kind of out of touch you do need to regulate technology though in the endless march of Mm -hmm. consumerism yeah i don't know
0: well and that's and it's and it's a question that will become very important very soon as as i mean it's already happening where technology is starting to play such an intimate role in our lives that, and it's going to, I mean, there's no stopping it there. It's going to continue. I mean, maybe there is stopping it. Maybe, I mean, if there's a, if there's a global crisis, economic crisis, maybe it will get stopped. But um, yeah, it's like uh, this all, all, a lot of the signs point to this not being solved anytime soon. I can't, am- I mean, maybe we should be giving the senators more education and technology. Cause like if, I don't know if anybody who's listening to this, if you saw it, but like, that Facebook hearing was just ridiculous. Like the, (laughs) they had no idea how to bring an understanding of technology into that conversation.
1: Yeah, and it's really tough because well, a lot of the answer is they're lobbyists who specialize in these issues. People, are, a lot of people think like lobbyists are like dark-robed, you know. And some people are kind of bad, but a lot of what lobbyists do is they specialize in a topic and they go and present on the topic to try to inform the, uh, you know, senator or whatever. But you get right back into the same problem where it's like people who are not elected are basically running regulation. These people are usually tied to industry, and you're kind of like back at the core issue which is you know the the object of regulation is becoming sort of in part the regulator uh yeah so it's really tough and and i want to say too is like the other problem is when you don't have regulation it's like the guru thing right where the most unscrupulous guru wins the guy who promises the most who does doesn't care the most about scamming Mm. when there's no rules he wins and so we do need regulation for companies to care because it's like if you're a super caring company, you're just not going to do that well. If you're just 100% green, while green is not super profitable to do, um, you're you're going to be worse off than your competitor. And so it's like there is a natural evolution of the problem where it's we evolve for bad behavior so long as that there's there's not incentives aligned. Because I. I people are, i think people are just a little too idealistic about in the absence of incentives they just expect people to do the right thing but they don't realize doing the right thing means competing yourself out of business
0: yeah and self interest and this gets into kind of so if i'm a senator and i've you know i've got all this i've got this power and i've got a growing base of people who are voting for me and people i want to get to vote for me and there's a lot of information that's coming into me, and then there's this lobbyist who's able to give a compelling presentation on what this thing, and they basically suck into my mind and give, uh, you know, allow me to change, influence me just by presenting the information, and it reminds me of the same thing with replication crisis, where people are uh, creating interesting new papers that aren't backed up by a lot of evidence because there's a incentive to publish, 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 publish. And then, um, so it's in all these different fields where the complexity of modernity is now, uh, just, it's really difficult to be an individual human being and put ourselves into context in this larger thing where it's like, you know, our brains were designed to be in the, in a, in a Savannah and, and all of a sudden like technology is like changing it. And it's part of the process. Like, you know, it's like, it's happening. There's no, there's no stopping this. So it's like, what do we do about it? Can we do anything? Like, do we have individual responsibility? Do we have free will? Uh, this is like, like I get into this, it's like you know, philosophical stuff because I think this is important because it gets into the ethics of like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, why are we doing it? Can we do anything? Do we do anything? No.
1: Um, there, wow, there's a lot. To, which part <laughs> should I take on? Should I take on? I don't think I could take on a lot of that, but
0: yeah. uh, um, whichever you feel more called to.
1: Okay, so I. I have a real passion for the replication crisis because I think um, one of the big things in the 21st century or the beginning really with like logical positivism in Vienna was that like science is that a lot of people think like, oh, science is sort of the thing I trust. I trust science, right? Um, but that's been breaking down a little bit because we've been realizing, oh, science is subject to the same cultural pressures that like everything else is. Mm. And that scientists, while they are usually people who are drawn to the truth, you know, it's about putting bread on the table and like mm. you get jaded and you you just want to do something that gets you recognized, the recognition you deserve. And so there's this, been this huge problem where we've been slowly uncovering the fact that, number one, one of the core tenets of science is rep, repl, rep, replication. But we realize that we don't incentivize replication. So science isn't really that replicable right now because we never try to do it. And so how can we say it's replicable when we never replicate, right? Um, But there's also another problem, which you touched on, which is that journals publish positive results. Journals are trying to get sold, right? It's like being sold a magazine. So, So you can think of scientists as like people finding stories and the journalists just selecting the ones they find the most interesting. The problem is that ones they find the most interesting are surprising positive results. And surprising results by definition are rare, which means that scientists are like cramming their brain and through no fault of their own, they're finding a bunch of unsurprising results over and over and they're seeing their colleagues get ahead by finding surprising results. So they go, okay, well, Mm -hmm. I really wanna find this, right? So whether unscrupulous or not, they have so much pressure so much peer pressure, institutional pressure that, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the stuff that gets out there is really bad. I've I've covered a lot of it on my channel. I don't know if you were referencing what I've done on my channel, but, um, there's endless examples of people, people basically either fabricating data or kind of fudging the numbers. It just goes, it, it's like a, it's a gradient of, you know, fraud. But one of the best examples I can give you and the problem with it, because people think, well, maybe it's not a big deal if some rando person in psychology gets something wrong. Okay. Um God, what's his name? Uh I'm trying to think of the sign. Hold on, let me look this up real quick. Sure. So we can just edit this out. Um it's the guy who Brian Deere exposed the journalist Brian Deere. It's the guy who did um vaccines. What? Andrew Wakefield. Okay. There's this guy, Andrew Wakefield, who in the, in 98 discovered this link between vaccines and autism, which is this crazy idea, right? Like, that's that's insane. How incredible. You know, we've never thought of this before. Maybe this is autism was rising at the time. Um, and so he he linked these. And this has been a problem ever since. Most people don't know that study was fraud. It was scientific fraud. Why was it fraud? Well, because he was looking for the data because he was he was. Working on a law panel where he was testifying against the vaccine companies before he started his scientific results. So, as a scientist, what does he do? He goes and finds the evidence to fit the narrative he wants to fit, right? He, I mean, there was stuff actually in the study that he literally just lied about. Um, some of the kids had pre existing conditions before the vaccine. He didn't report it. You know, he just faked the whole thing. So, does anybody uh, find out about that? No. There's millions of people who think, who still think that vaccines cause autism. The rep, like the retraction is always less important than the actual publication. So people don't know that this study has been retracted. And so it just causes problems for years and years, even after we've thoroughly debunked it. Um, so yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a real problem because people say like people's cl- truth claims a lot of times as a society is, well, I saw a study that said when a lot of those studies are wrong and unchecked, unfact checked, Peer review is notoriously bad at catching errors. People are surprised to find out. Like, what do we do? How do we evaluate truth claims from that point, knowing that nobody has time to read past an abstract, knowing that no one has time to understand the complexity of a field, to know the different standpoints. So, yeah, I know it's really tough, but um, that's something I'm hugely interested in, in realigning scientific incentives with truth, not with sensationalism.
0: And it goes back to the guru thing as well. And I want to add that there is – so a lot of ways, the only <clears throat> the, be, uh, the best way, in my opinion, to find out the truth from what is not true is to give it time and let it enter the human experience through a lot of people. And then over time, we find it out. And this is the same thing with replication. People try it, test it enough. And over time, we get an understanding of what is actually true and what is not. And so there is actually a way. I, I, going back to the guru thing, but actually in the spiritual sense that in India, where a lot of the innovation among philosophy was happening, uh, there was a, you you basically came in through a lineage and the, the, the role of tradition was actually to be like, okay, we've tested this through generations and this is actually the truth as we've understood it. Um, but then we in, in America in particular, I think have this bucking tradition which i love i i I do and think it's really important to question tradition uh but at the same time there is that factor that that's what tradition is for and also like you just need to give it time but in some senses are we running out of time now do we like and that's that's a big question i don't know (laughs) how to approach that one
1: yeah I, th- I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I, I, I agree with your comments on um, tradition, uh, that being a good thing. The, the problem is science is like, the, specifically with the replication crisis, is the assumption that we are finding the errors with time is sort of an in a pace that outstrips the errors jumping into our uh, kind of corpus of knowledge is sort of an assumption. And it's also uh, Mm. just not true that this is the fastest way we could build a reliable corpus of knowledge, right? Like it's not just enough to say, oh, well, eventually we'll figure out that it's wrong. Well, it eventually can mean 30 years later when this sort of fundamental study Mm. of the field has now become like the main thing. And we've wasted 30 years of research just basically under the uh, sort of theory of a guy who turns out to be wrong. So it's important to test often and it's important to uh, not just expect that it will come out. I mean, like stuff won't come out unless we test it, right? So uh, this is why the replication crisis only happened when people started testing. Like when people were like, wait, do we actually believe like the top psychological studies? So they retested them and like 50% didn't replicate or something like that. Some insane number of the landmark studies didn't replicate and
0: it's so hard because it's like yeah like the zimbardo the zimbardo one which Stanford like, prison everyone, experiment yeah uh, everyone talks about uh and like and it fits the story it's such a good story because it fits it fits right into our preconceived notions of like what power means and and so maybe this is you know and it goes back to the philosophy thing of like Nietzsche Nietzsche said that god is dead and we killed him and all this different stuff and then And then science comes along and then science is is a new God. Um, And then, but then we can't even be sure of that. So like how to, and, but this goes into the guru thing as well, because the gurus are offering certainty and where no such certainty exists. And the only way you find that out is through suffering, like understanding that a lot of times your expectations don't match with reality and you will be wrong and things won't go your way. Um, But that's not the positive side. and, And everybody tells you to be positive and all this in BS. So I don't know. Rant over. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: I think the important thing is to know that we can and should make things better. I mean, like the, the, I think it is um, a sort of useless truth that we cannot perfect things. Right. Like it, it's true. But that we shouldn't just stop there. Like even what we talked about with – I mean it's been a recurring theme that like, oh, this is, this is just this really hard problem that there's so many problems enmeshed here. We could never fully separate it out and get to the perfect ideal thing. And But I'm a huge pragmatist. It's like that is a meaningless statement to me. Okay, sure. Now what? Uh, now we make things better. Now we incentivize replication by publishing replication. Now we incentivize people finding new, uh, no, the null hypothesis, which is no result at all by publishing it, by pre-registering the report. And so we actually publish things that are basically unsurprising. Um, because this is how we build a reliable body of knowledge. Will science ever be perfectly aligned with like what science in, in theory is like capital S science, what people think of as science, uh, Probably not, but can we do much, much, much better than we are now? Yes, and we should, and the more people that know about it, the more people speak out about it. I mean, something that I harp on a lot, and it's just because I was sort of disillusioned um, to the scientific process as it is, as it stands in the 21st century, like people don't know that when you peer review something, a lot of times the lead scientist does not send the peer reviewer the raw data. Think about how crazy that is. Mm. You've probably spent your whole life thinking peer review is this really reliable process. How reliable can something be when you don't have the raw data? Just just the guy can just make up tables and this happens all the, t- I don't wanna say all the time, it happens more often than you would like to believe that the data is not actually, or the tables they send are not actually representative of the data. They shifted it to fit a story, right? Um, they've, they've also done a bunch of studies on peer review. Like they've given the same peer reviewer or the same study to several different peer reviewers and they all disagree on the quality of the study. One guy says it's perfect. One guy says it's flawed and it needs revision. And one guy says, this is the worst study I've ever seen. We'll never publish this. Right? So it's like, how reliable can something be when you're not given the same quality metric? Um, And that's sort of right now our standard of truth is like, is it peer reviewed? Is it not peer reviewed? People need to know about that. You know, people need to know that when fraud is reported at an institution it is rarely investigated not rarely prosecuted rarely but nobody's looking into this stuff because it's a it's an it's a shame to the institution this is actually a story i'm gonna do soon um but it's it's terrible it's like so we should fix these things but we can only fix them when we know there's a problem is it an intractable problem probably but can we improve yes
0: so it gets rant into, over. <laughs> <laughs> so it gets into the nature of education, and and it, it's also reminding me about uh, basically our our gift as human beings, and maybe the evolutionary point, if I could even say that, of um, culture and culture basically has a bunch of wrong idea inputs into it, and then over time and through education, we become smarter collectively maybe but maybe that maybe that claim isn't actually accurate that we all we are becoming smarter collectively. What do you think? Are we becoming smarter collectively?
1: Uh, yeah, no, it depends defi- I think it depends on how you define intelligence. I think in some ways we are. In some ways we're kind of like becoming these weird cyborgs where our phones know like we, like our phones are an extension of ourselves and your phone kind of knows so much about the world. It's a, or it's kind of like stores so much information about the world that are most people more broadly informed? Absolutely. I think you every. I could say that unquestionably. More broadly informed. I think we're becoming less deeply informed. I mm-hmm. think uh, we we read so many headlines. We just watch sound bites that we kind of know just a little about a lot, and we've traded that for knowing a lot about a little.
0: But that, but that goes into something that's been happening for a while, which is that in the 1800s, the scientists could completely know all the knowledge in their field. Um, and then now it is impossible for one scientist to completely understand their field. And they have to deep burrow and burrow deeper and deeper and deeper into their specialization. Um, and that it becomes, it's just there is so much abstract information out there uh, that it becomes impossible to think of like, I mean, even back then it would be you know, you'd have your specialty, but then you wouldn't be able to really understand the implications of that. It's just kind of the nature of a human being as a limited human being that doesn't, can't fully encompass all the stuff that's going on there. And then that, but that gets, goes back to the question of collective, like I interviewed one person who talks about how Facebook and to a certain extent, the Chinese government is putting us into subgroups so that it no longer really is useful to talk about myself as an individual, but it's more useful to talk about myself as an individual within a subgroup that I belong um, because that subgroup is the one that's being motivated and influenced towards a particular behavior.
1: I think, uh, hold on, hold on. I want to push back on something. I've read Isaac Asimov's idea where he's like, we're knowing increasingly a lot about, like, well, people have to specialize in smaller and smaller fields to know all about that field. So we know increasingly everything about nothing, I think is is his quote, Um, which is kind of funny, whatever. But I, I would say, I would say, I don't think most scientists feel like they don't know their field, like they don't fully know their field. I think- a lot of and, – and I'll say this as, like, someone who um, more and more on Coffee Break – not on CoffeeZilla because CoffeeZilla is kind of for fun, whatever. Coffee Break, increasingly I'm going deeper and I'm, like, just starting to read papers. Um, and you find with every with every field, like, like, when you get to a subspecialty, there aren't an infinite number of papers on really mm-hmm. narrow topics. Mm-hmm. Like, as soon as you try to broaden, that is a problem. When you try to take something as, like, you know – The human body. Yeah. Now no one can know what it is. And it is also true that no scientist would say we know everything about an even tiny amount of topic, but they would say he pro they probably are aware of every meaningful study that's been done on that topic. They're just saying that there's so much complexity in life that I can't possibly, like we could study this forever and we'll never get it all. But, um, yeah, no, I think I think great uh, solutions to this have been done, which are like there are uh, literature reviews where people will cover all the relevant literature in a topic. They're not perfect, but mm-hmm. it's better to just read the papers. But that's a great jumping off point to know, you know, what are the relevant studies in this field? Well, it's this guy, 2010. It's this guy, 95. It's this guy, whatever. And you go read those papers and you kind of get, you, yeah, anyway. Um,
0: so I think I want I want to add for anybody listening who's really interested in this kind of like, complexity have you read the book beginning of infinity by david deutsch i uh, yeah I'd, I'd recommend it it's a great book talking about this kind of like infinite knowledge and in, and where where it's going uh so the there's this last question which is as science becomes more important and people trust uh, some part of the population trusts more um scientists are you planning on and like doctors being an extension of this kind of the practitioner uh, are you going to plan on taking down any of these kind of doctors who are using science in a fraudul- fraudulent way in order to sell more courses or whatever? Do you know, have you been seeing this at all?
1: Uh, yeah, I plan, I-, I will be making a video very soon about a sp- A professor who uh, has done some sketchy stuff whatever but um it's not my dream to like talk about these things endlessly i've just found myself in a weird position where i find people being so uncritical of these things that like i feel i I found that i have an itch for this stuff if nobody knows something is basically bullshit i have to i have like i'm it's it's a tick or something like that i have to say something about it and so there's just so much of that in the world that i feel like i'm going to spend forever talking about it but um yeah i think uh, to your point about people trusting science people need to i think we need a better societal understanding of what science is science is not uh, a holistic thing it is a fractured concept which we use as like generally like the scientific method is the closest thing you could get to science or like the philosophy of science. No, even that we don't have a working definition of people have entirely different ideas of what science means, what it could mean. Um, so, and, and scientists just disagree all the time. So it's like, when you say I trust science, which part of the science do you trust? You know, people disagree. What do you mean? Right. Um, I think, I think what is increasingly important and it's so hard to ask people because we have such limited time. Um, and it's just another one of those problems that's very hard to get at. We need to expect more of the people reading science. Like the everyday layman needs to know how to read a scientific paper. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's just true. And this- they need to know they they need to read past the abstract, which means science journals need to start opening, open accessing their papers. Like this is a huge problem. People don't have access to papers unless they're going to spend a hundred dollars. You're not going to spend a hundred dollars to just read a six page paper, right? Like. These are things we need to break down. And then from an kind of explainer category, I don't know if I put myself in that, maybe. um, An explainer category, we should expect more from our explainers. Something that drives me insane is when pop science people misrepresent science because I think it's so detrimental to like, there should be this chain of understanding from the scientist to the learner and you want to have as few kind of misunderstandings on the line as you can. And so often entertainers are basically turning science into this buzzy thing that's all fun and cool and they lose all the nuance and the important nuance. And then I think, I think you can kind of move backwards where now you don't believe the science or you don't believe, you know, because you've seen it go wrong so many times, you know, so.
0: And this gets into – we need an online course or something that teaches people how to read uh scientific documents because it's hard it's not like the language that these these papers are written in is not takes training in order to understand it
1: yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. um this is why i'm a big believer in college i think college prepares you to uh, there are a lot of i know increasingly people are doubting college a lot more i see it all the time um i don't know your take on it Actually, let me ask you your take on it first <laughs> real quick.
0: So yeah, I, I I went to university and I think that's the actual thing because they're not doubting university. That I think the people that you're talking about in Silicon Valley, they're not doubting university. They're doubting finishing university. So getting into the university is the important part because then you get the signal and then you, then you can drop out and start another company. Um, but I think it depends on an individual. So I think if you um, come from a, a background where your family was... In, in technology or like you grew up with this stuff in the household then college you've you've already kind of been in it you may, you might already have this thing but if you're coming from in a background where you don't have that at home uh and uh, and and you like you can't enter that language because it's essentially a language i think most subcultures are essentially brought together through the language that they use and like whether you are an insider or an outsider is based on whether you can fit the mold of that language so then college might be really important for me personally i love learning and I've always kind of taught myself things. I was just having a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who is on me in terms of like, cause now that I'm starting to uh, do a lot more videos and starting to speak more, like you have to be skeptical of the people that, that you're asking these questions to. Um, and so. Uh, oh,
1: that's interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. It's, he's basically like you, but in, in on Facebook Messenger just telling me like, you're an idiot. Stop, stop, <laughs> stop talking to, I'm just kidding. But, uh, um, and, uh, and so uh, for me, I think universities need to change a lot in order to be relevant uh, for what's coming. Um, and I think a lot of that can be done online. Uh, and I'm interested in figuring out how it can be done online Particularly now in the past 24 hours of the skepticism thing of how to teach people to be skeptical Um, I think that seems to be the root of science as well. It's like uh, Don't like there is truth, but it's really fucking hard to get to it and explain it
1: Yeah Hold on. I, gosh, I, I should have written notes on that because I have a few things I want to talk about there. Uh, number one, I'm a huge believer in college. I just disagree with how much it costs. Mm. But I think I think the principle of like learning basic statistics, because high school is such a joke. Most people don't learn hardly learn anything in high school. College is like the first time where I felt like I was actually, oh, I'm building a body of knowledge. Oh, this is great. Um, I, I mean, and I wasn't loving my degree. Like I, like I said, I did chemical engineering. I never really used it. I didn't like it. Um, there's a reason I got out of it, but it taught me statistics. It taught me how to read a research paper. It taught me how to think abstractly. Like these are things that are not immediately pragmatic. Like it's not super important that you can, you read a paper immediately, but it informs how you think. And it informs like your later life and what you believe about the world. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge believer in people like sort of getting that basic training in how to think how to like read things that are complex, how to think about problems that are unsolved. Like in high school, you think, oh, science is easy. And it like all fits together like a glove. And in college, you find out, oh, actually everybody disagrees. And we have no, like we, we kind of know, but we were, you know, we're figuring it out, whatever. Um, As to your like skeptical point, I think it's interesting because I think skepticism is a tool, but it's not the solution. It's Mm -hmm. a tool in a tool chest. It's great to like, hate on gurus. And it's great to say, yeah, they're stupid and you shouldn't believe them. But then people are like, now what? Like, what do I do now? (laughs) I mean, I still have my life to live. I need to know what do I do kind of post guru. Um, So I try to tell people like the biggest thing is to learn to be an autodidact where you're like um, where you teach yourself and to learn to do things the hard way. I mean, like that's where you learn the lessons learn to not rely on somebody else as a crutch um, learn to filter through people for relevant information to take what you need and then move on and get something from somebody else uh, yeah I think I th- but but anyway I think skepticism is a great tool to kind of realize that there are you know aren't as easy of answers as people are promising you out there but then what so that's that's another thing that I think college helps with I mean people say college is a scam but You can actually look at how much money people make after college and before college take the average and people make a lot more money at like if you do college, you're a lot more likely to do well. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just because like you said, it's a great signal, but, um, but Mm -hmm. I also think it just helps you think better. So it's a, it's, it's, I think skepticism is a tool, not a solution. That, That was kind
0: of my main point. And then there is no, there is no thing itself. There's no, like all of these tools are essentially just like, helpful ways to do it but then it, it like there is no answer there's no answer there to say like this is the thing you need to do in order to reach this goal or reach happiness wealth and uh, what was it wealth happiness and uh, health wealth and happiness health wealth and happiness yeah there is no there is no technique that's going to get you there um,
1: right I, well it's funny because all three of them are not things that can be attacked on directly right Like, you cannot ta- attack your health directly there's no like you know, you have to go exercise. You need to eat right, which is like eating right is kind of its own thing, right? Um, diet's its own thing. You know, you can't get wealth just by thinking about wealth or talking about wealth. Well, actually, that's not true. You can't get wealth <laughs> by talking about wealth, just but uh, you shouldn't be able to. Yeah. You, you have to go do something. You have to go create something, create value. Um, happiness is the same. You can't, people think they're, so, actually, that was going to be a hot take. Never mind I was, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say you think yourself into a depression. What I mean by that is by focusing on your depression, you never will get happier. Like you have to go a lot of times just like breaking your patterns is a huge part of getting back to normal to the, your baseline. Um, so, yeah, no, it's it, it's interesting. Yeah, you, it's very true.
0: Well, this has been a lot of fun and uh, definitely I'd love to do it again. Um, and how can people find out more about what you're working on in your in your YouTube channel? You can go look up Coffee Break.
1: Uh, I should be the first one to come up. You can also look up Coffee Zilla. I should also be the first one to come up. New fake guru coming soon, and we also have a big uh, thing about science on the main channel coming out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, this is super fun, man. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this one. Thanks. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Steven. If you did, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the other major podcasting platforms Uh, and go ahead and subscribe and maybe even give it a review. I'd really appreciate it if you could review. Also, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, iii. my DMs are open, would love to hear from you about what you think of this show. Uh, By the time I publish this, I will probably be out of my meditation retreat, and I will probably be on a whole other type of retreat, and I haven't really talked about this publicly, I'm going to start talking about it publicly a little bit. I'm going to take a plant medicine called Iboga, I've been dealing with some chronic pain issues for the last seven years, Uh, part of the reason why I started this show was to find out how other people were dealing with stress and creativity. In uh, creating something in a highly stressful situation, because my life has been extremely stressful for the last seven years. Uh, and this plant medicine is good at getting to the root of it, um, and uh, so I'm going to be doing that as well. It's pretty intense. Uh, so, it's yeah, it's called eBoga if you're interested in lo- finding out more about it. Joe Rogan's talked a little bit about it. Other people have talked about it. It's just becoming up on the mainstream, and I'm actually going to start doing interviews with the providers that I'm going to some of the other providers, because I see something really interesting happening in Mexico right now. So, you know, last 30 years, you've had drugs coming from Colombia, Peru, all these different places to the United States, people getting addicted to drugs there. And then the main reason people use Iboga is to get off of opiates. Uh, And so they're actually going down to Mexico where Iboga is legal, uh, or not illegal, actually, Um, it is illegal in the United States. So they're going down to Mexico, and there's whole kind of underground plant medicine community is just coming off the ground. And the reason I'm going is not for addiction. I'm actually going for personal development and chronic pain. Um, and so there's a whole large amount of people now looking towards this, this plant medicine for, um, for learning more about themselves and, and personal development. And so that's actually a new kind of thing that's happening. So I'm going to go investigate that as well. Cause it's pretty interesting. Hope you enjoyed that little rant that I was not expecting to give right now. Uh, but it's a little treat for you. So have a great day.